Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi, everyone. Dan Amender here. On behalf of all of us at Cardiners, we are thrilled to bring you our Decipher the Guidelines series for the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and for educational purposes only. This series was developed by Cardiners and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college students through advanced fellowship with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bizanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance. So join us as we get to learn about the guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. With that said, it's time to get nerdy. The following question refers to section 9.3 of the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA guidelines for the management of heart failure. Questions asked by Keck School of Medicine, USC medical student, and cardio nerds intern Hirsch Elhent, answered first by Cedar Sinai Medicine resident and soon to be Vanderbilt cardiology fellow and cardio nerds academy fellow Dr. Brianna Hansen, and then by expert faculty Dr. Anu Lala. Dr. Lala is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist, associate professor of medicine and population health science and policy. Director of Heart Failure Research and Program Director for the Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Fellowship Training Program at Mount Sinai. Dr. Lala is Deputy Editor for the Journal of Cardiac Failure. Dr. Lala has been a champion and role model for CardioNerds. She's been a PI mentor for the CardioNerds Clinical Trials Network and continues to serve in the program's leadership. She's also a faculty mentor for this very 2022 Heart Failure Decipher the Guidelines series. Dr. Lala, welcome back to CardioNerds. We're so happy to have you. Oh, thanks, Mark. It's so wonderful to be here. I just absolutely love this platform and organization, and I feel so proud of all of you for all the work that you've done to democratize education in cardiology. And we honestly have learned so much from all of you. So it's it's really a selfish thing on my part to be able to be a part of any of these endeavors. So thank you for having me. Thanks so much. So our patient today is Mrs. Hart. She's a 63-year-old woman with a history of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and heart failure with, with reduced ejection fraction with an LVEF of 20 to 25%. She's presenting with five days of worsening dyspnea and orthopnea. At home, she takes Carvedilol 12.5 milligrams BID, Secubitril Valsartan 24 and 46 milligrams BID, and Pagliflozin 10 milligrams daily, and Furosemide 40 milligrams daily. On admission, her exam revealed a blood pressure of 111 over 79, a heart rate of 80 beats per minute, and an oxygen saturation of 94%. Her cardiovascular exam is significant for a regular rate and rhythm with an audible S3, JVD to 13 centimeters of water, bilateral lower extremity pitting edema with warm extremities, and two plus pulses throughout. What initial dose of diuretics would you, would you give her? And so option A is continue home terosamide at 40 milligrams PO. Option B is start metolazone 5 milligrams PO. Option C is start Lasix 100 milligrams IB. And option D is start spernalactone. And free, you know, I, um, I'm kind of lost here. So, you know, I would love your help figuring out what the most appropriate medication would be at this time. Thanks, Parrish, for that great and very high-yield question. The correct answer here is going to be answer choice C. Start furosemide at 100 milligrams IV. 
This is the most appropriate choice because patients with heart failure admitted with evidence of significant fluid overload should be promptly treated with intravenous loop diuretic to improve symptoms and reduce morbidity. This is a class one level of evidence B recommendation. Intravenous loop diuretic therapy provides the most rapid and effective treatment for signs and symptoms of congestion. Titration of diuretics has been described in multiple recent trials of patients hospitalized with heart failure, often initiated with at least two times the daily home diuretic dose, milligram to milligram, and then administered intravenously. Titration to achieve effective diuresis may require doubling of initial doses, adding a thiazide diuretic, or adding an MRA that has diuretic effects in addition to its cardiovascular benefits. Now let's go over why some of the other answer choices are incorrect. Choice A is incorrect as continuing oral loop diuretics is not recommended for acute decongestion. Moreover, Miss Hart has become congested despite her home oral diuretic regimen. Choice B and D are incorrect as starting a thiazide diuretic or an MRA are not first-line therapy for acute heart failure. Rather, in patients hospitalized with heart failure when diuresis is inadequate to relieve symptoms and signs of congestion, then it is reasonable to intensify the diuretic regimen using either higher doses of intravenous loop diuretic or addition of a second diuretic, which is a class 2A recommendation. After instituting intravenous loop diuretic therapy, escalating attempts to achieve net diuresis include serial doubling of intravenous loop diuretic doses, which can be done by bolus or infusion and sequential nephron blockade with an addition of a thiazide diuretic, as detailed specifically in the protocol for the diuretic arm of the Caress and Rose trials. MRAs have mild diuretic properties, and addition of MRAs can help with diuresis in addition to significant cardio benefits in people with heart failure. For patients hospitalized with heart failure, therapy with diuretics and other guideline-directed medications should be titrated with a goal to resolve clinical evidence of congestion to reduce symptoms and rehospitalization. Another class one recommendation. For patients requiring diuretic treatment during hospitalizations for heart failure, the discharge regimen should include a plan for adjustment of those diuretics as well to decrease rehospitalization. Another class one recommendation. To put this all together and summarize our main takeaway here, patients admitted with acute heart failure should be promptly treated with intravenous loop diuretic. If current level of diuresis becomes inadequate to relieve symptoms and signs of congestion, it is reasonable to intensify the diuretic regimen using either higher doses of intravenous loop diuretics or addition of a second diuretic, such as a thiazide or MRI. All patients should then have the diuretic regimen updated on discharge. Dr. Lala, I would love to hear your thoughts on this question. Yeah, thanks, Brie. First of all, like you went through it so beautifully. I wish you could, uh, you know, hang out with us on rounds tomorrow morning. But I think, you know, you, you really hit on all the the high notes. I would say that the dose trial now, my goodness, 12 years ago, really taught us that high doses of diuretics work, are safe, and should not be avoided. <laughs> I mean, that's the real big deal. And you would it's hard to imagine that 12 years later, we still have so much trepidation about using such doses. Think about how often it is that someone's on 40 milligrams of furosemide at home comes into the emergency department with an exacerbation and gets 100 milligrams of IV furosemide. It almost never happens. Why? Why is it that it doesn't happen? It's because people are afraid that we're going to cause cardiorenal syndrome, you're going to dry them out, or you're going to see a bump in creatinine, or they're going to get abruptly hypotensive. And that's precisely what the dose trial studied, right? Was 
do those effects happen? Is that actually what is seen? And yes, you may see some increase in creatinine, but what we've learned over the years, and this is still an area that is ripe for further clarification, is that that changes in creatinine may need to be what we sacrifice so that we can have adequate congestion. Because what we do know for sure is that when if you're discharged with congestion, you have worse outcomes than if you are not congested on discharge. And so that has to be the goal. You know, some of my nephrology colleagues who I adore really use this term, this is Steve Coca and, and others, of permissive hypercreatinemia, which is a mouthful, needless to say. But it's really, you know, you know how much I feel that words matter. And so when we talk about AKI, everybody shudders, right? Because it's like, oh my God, acute kidney injury. What's happened now? Now this person has worse outcomes because their kidney function has changed. And yes, that may be true. The very fact that the kidney function is labile, both in the direction of getting worse or getting better, quite frankly, the lability itself is what is associated with worse outcomes. But we know for a fact that congestion is associated with worse outcomes. So might as well do what is going to allow that patient potentially to stay out of the hospital for longer and to feel better while doing so. So A, I'm aggressive, but it's not aggressive really. It's like the strong HF study said that, you know, this is the aggressive arm of guideline-directed medical therapy escalation and dose showed the aggressive mode of diuretic uh, dosing. And it's not aggressive. It should just be standard of care because it's been studied in that fashion. So I will reframe my words and say that I use the doses studied in the dose trial, which is 2.5 times the oral dose IV in my patients who are decompensated and congested, frankly. You know, what we touched on in a previous question was, how does that patient respond? So I use the appropriate dose, and then do they adequately decongest? And how do I assess for decongestion, right? And this is an area that I have to say we still don't have a great handle on. You know, I did an analysis with Rob Mens and with others many, many years ago with our own version of this heart failure apprentice network of the dose and the caress trials, where you could see that those studies involved centers that were high, high level, aimed predominantly at decongestion. And still, what was crazy is if we looked at congestion by measures of orthopnea and edema, 50% of patients went home with residual congestion. In clinical trials at expert centers that were devoted to decongest patients, which to me is like wild to think about, you know? So we're still not really sure as a community as to what constitutes adequate decongestion. But one of the tips that I use is I do what's called a heart failure stress test. <laughs> and what that means is not that you have to do a six-minute walk test necessarily, although that would be pretty cool, or a cardiopulmonary exercise test, but rather can you watch your patient walk in the halls or at least walk to the bathroom? And are they dyspneic when they walk to and from? A. B, can you lie your patient down completely flat and really assess, as I call it, this is the orthopnea stress test, that they are truly not orthopnic when you lie them down flat? And if they are, that's okay, 
as long as you've then felt like you've adequately decongested them such that maybe this is a patient where their RA is five and their wedge remains at 20 or 25, but it is not normal for you to be orthopnic on discharge. It should give you some pause as to the need for additional medical therapy and or consideration of other therapies, unloading or even advanced therapies in the right patient. So that's how I think about diuretic management. I want my patient to be as dry as I can have them before I send them home. And the way I can tell that they're potentially drier is, yes, you can look at changes in NT-pro BNP levels, and it's reassuring when those come down. And surely you want the patient to be free of the symptoms that brought them in in the first place. But then I will do the additional symptom tests like I shared with you. And you can look for other measures too, like hemoconcentration and and other factors. But these are the things that I keep in mind. I, I hope that's helpful. Thank you so much, Dr. Law. That was extremely helpful, especially going over how you assess congestion. I feel like I've always struggled with that when I'm starting to diary the patient. Would you mind sharing with us maybe your approach to diuretic escalation if you're starting to see that these patients aren't getting decongested with their diuretic? Yeah, perfect question. Thanks so much, Bri. I, I am a fan of sequential nephron blockade. And so if you look at, again, these DOS and CARES trials, a majority of patients had a thiazide diuretic on board for sequential nephron blockade and to augment diuresis. So I very frequently will add metolazone Using a, a thiazide IV sometimes is not always accessible to everyone, but metolazone is generally pretty ubiquitous. So I will add that once I've gotten to higher doses of diuretic. And you, there's a debate as to what that really means. What is higher doses of diuretics? Well, I mean, again, you're taking the baseline diuretic dose into account, but I'll have patients on as high as 120 IV TID of furosemide plus metolazone twice a day and, and really try to dry them out. And let's say you're on such high doses. Let's say you're at that point where you're on upwards of 400 IV furosemide and metolazone and they're still not diuresing to the extent that you think that they should and they remain congested. What do you do for that patient, right? So things that come up on the floor all the time, which I'm sure you guys are all also exposed to is, oh, let's add a, a ninotrope. Let's add dopamine for renal perfusion and see if this patient will diurese better. Or let's move this patient and just do ultrafiltration because they're not responding to diuretics. And I would say that this is an area that is under a lot of scrutiny and investigation. There are a lot of papers written by Jeff Testani and Wilson Tang and others that have sought to truly define what diuretic resistance means. And I think this is a tricky area, but by and large, I will say that what we do know is this, at least based on the CARES trial, if a patient has worsening creatinine with decongestion, so you think that they have cardiorenal syndrome in that setting, you know, these patients were randomized to high-dose diuretic, the, the protocols used in the dose trial versus ultrafiltration. And, you know, some of the downside to caress is that they were ultrafiltrated at fixed rates and high rates. And so we might have been ultrafiltrating them too fast to allow for refill from the interstitium into the intravascular space. So yeah, in some cases, I may resort to ultrafiltration, although I will say it's not 
necessarily as common. And I think that this is an area that still warrants further study. And I know Maria Rosa Costanzo and others are, are aiming and striving to, to fill this knowledge gap. In terms of using inotropes, again, like I was talking about in the previous question, when I pull for inotropes, I think about where I'm going here. The very fact that I need to reach for them implies that this patient has a heightened risk for adverse outcomes. And so immediately I start thinking, well, is this someone who's headed down a pathway towards needing advanced therapies? And if so, how fast do we think we're headed there? I don't start inotropes with the idea of saying, okay, I'm going to have you on inotropes for five days, get rid of some fluid, and then take it off and think that nothing happens. Because the data that we have thus far, although very dated, uh, or not very dated, but dated, is that inotropes increase mortality. And so why would we use something that's increasing myocardial oxygen consumption that we know is associated with worsening arrhythmias? And we don't know, quite importantly, what their precise effect is on decongesting patients who are diuretic resistant. And so the ROSE trial tried to get at this where they had three arms and they looked at using low-dose dopamine, low-dose niceratide versus standard of care, again, using dose algorithm for diuretic therapy. And there was actually really no significant difference between those arms. And again, you could say, okay, these are very low doses of dopamine and maybe we would have seen different results if it were higher doses or whatnot. But I think that that remains really speculative. So in short, I would say that I do use inotropes in select situations where I think that underperfusion or hypoperfusion may be playing a role or that RV dysfunction particularly is playing a role in preventing me from being successful in decongestion. And then I start the inotrope with some sort of plan in place. Like what's next? What does this mean for this patient? And I start thinking and talking about prognosis and exploring goals of care, not just in terms of end of life, but really patient preference, family understanding of disease, et cetera, because I know that that patient is at heightened risk for adverse events. Bree, Dr. Law, thank you both so much for that super informative discussion. Really appreciate it.